I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the podcast. Always glad to be here with you, even though being here means being by myself in a room with a desk and a microphone. Uh, Still kind of feels like sharing space. I have this experience when I leave my friends voice messages on like WhatsApp or something, like even though they're not there, I feel their presence and I don't want to stop talking as if I'm, you know, actually receiving something from them. I think I am energetically, but you know what I mean? Glad to be sharing this energetic space with you. Uh, Today's episode is really exciting because I feel like it is merging two worlds in a way that makes me excited and um, is a little bit relaxing because I've felt a bit of a a crisis of identity recently. Um, And what I mean by all of that is that, you know, when I started this podcast, let's see, this podcast is now almost five years old, not quite, four and a half years, uh, started in late 2018 after about a year of planning and recording like several introductions that never got posted thankfully, because they were not amazing. Glad I waited until the right time. Uh, But anyway, this podcast has existed for four and a half years. And when I started the podcast, I was coming out of this whole other phase of my life where I had an extremely unhealthy relationship to work and to creativity. And when I started my podcast, I didn't want it to take on the same shape as other projects that I'd taken on professionally had done in the past. And, you know, even for me, like prior to the podcast, I was working for myself. I worked in the natural products industry. I was working in marketing. I was doing a lot of food photography and recipe creation, both for brands and for uh, a blog that I had. So I was working for myself and that was cool because I liked what I was doing and I chose to do it and got a lot of experience in nine to fives prior in order to be able to work for myself and to do all of this. Um, But I still you know, was using my success in that area to like really define myself and um, using it as an external source of value that was, you know, providing me with some degree of self-worth and had a lot of really like unchecked and unexamined perfectionism. And I was super controlling and just super neurotic and stressed out all the time. So it really ate away at me and I did not know how to engage in you know, a work project that even though I liked it, I just, I couldn't create boundaries for myself. And so when I created this podcast, it was not only because I, you know, just genuinely wanted to create this as an artistic creative endeavor. Um, 
and professional endeavor, but mostly creative endeavor. Uh, but also because I actually wanted to like use the project as a way to help train me in, um, how to engage in work in a new way. Uh, and so, you know, I made myself a few promises and, and one of those promises was like that I wasn't going to prioritize a regular schedule, um, or releasing a certain amount of content instead of just sort of like following my creative intuition. Um, so if a month goes by, like as it has now, or if my life sort of shifted that I would give myself permission to adapt accordingly. And so sometimes this project might be a really big part of my life and other times it might be not a big part of my life. Um, and I really wanted it to last as long as possible. And I figured that like allowing it to grow with me would be a great way to do that. And another sort of founding principle of the podcast was this idea that even if it adapted with me, even if it grew with me, that this was not something that I needed to start and commit to as something I was going to do for the rest of my life. I think this is a a really big mistake that people make, um, that the, like to make a change, like to change a job or to move to a new city, they think like, oh, this this decision is the decision for the rest of my life, right? And like, you know, there might be a possibility that you might move to a new city and it might not be the right city, but like while you're there, you meet someone who lives in this other city and you move there and, and that turns out to be the right thing for you. Um, and so I wanted to kind of use this podcast as that as well, like maybe a stepping stone to something or something that would be in my life for a certain period of time. And ultimately the end goal in all of it, in all of these ideas that I talk about relative to regenerative agriculture and community and health and wellness and grief and trauma and spirituality and religion and sexuality and gender and all of these things, you know, is not just because I like philosophizing about stuff, but actually because me starting this podcast was like the podcast was a symptom of me recreating my life and exploring ideas that I was passionate about that I didn't give myself permission to focus on and explore past college because I didn't really understand how I could do any of that stuff professionally. But ultimately, the goal wasn't just to talk about these things and to discuss these things with other people, although I hope to do that forever because talking about cool things with cool people is great. But the point was to apply these ideas to life. And although I started this podcast in my little cabin in Topanga after a brutal couple years, a brutal dark night of the soul of being incredibly physically sick and just really questioning and reconstructing every single thing in my life. But even though I started it in that place of kind of nothingness, right, of like starting again and this fresh, open path of possibilities, I did want to walk down that path and I did ultimately want to create something and create a life and create a community and a little world that mirrored my values in a way that I had never done for myself before. And so all of these ideas that you hear me talking about on this podcast are things that I've been interested in forever, right? Like uh, since I was a teenager. But the problem was that I just didn't take those ideas or myself seriously enough and didn't have nearly enough confidence or even self-awareness to create a life that mirrored those values. And I, you know, was chasing unhealthy relationships and was super codependent and there was just no space for me to create an authentic 
life and find my authentic life path until this moment. Uh, But what I always envisioned was that this podcast would sort of over time morph into tangible reality, which I know is something that I've I've talked about a lot, especially if you've been listening to the podcast all these years. But I think there's probably a lot of new people listening today, so giving you some some extra background. But one day I hoped to, you know, create a world and have these ideas be the foundation of that world. And I don't mean the whole world. I don't even mean a whole community. I just mean my little world, my little community, my little tribe, however big that happens to be. And so now I'm at this moment in my life, four and a half years later, where that thing that used to be a dream, a daydream, like I can even remember the daydream. I can remember what the sort of idea looked like and felt like in my head at that time. Uh, And the reality doesn't look exactly like that, but it's quite similar. The energy is, is very much the same. But now my life is... Uh, unfolding in a way that there are people and there is a place and there is a house and there is a community and there is land. And so I'm in this process right now of sort of figuring out how the podcast, you know, should still exist within the context of me sort of taking the podcast and like planting it in the ground as a real thing uh, that people are going to walk on and live on. And so I have no plans to stop the podcast at all. However, I do feel like my attention and my passion and my focus is being pulled far more toward the tangible and the local and the immediate. Like I'm so much preferring these days to go help, you know, at the community garden or volunteer at the music festival here, you know, just really spend time where I am because I've spent so long envisioning this (laughs) part, you know, and trying to manifest this part. And now this part, not that it's anywhere near completion. I don't even think that's the way to look at it. It's not like a linear path or there's no end goal. But now that there's more of that tangible, real stuff in my life, like that's so much what I'm drawn to. And out of the blue, uh, a month or so ago, I got a message from someone who works at the local paper paper here, the Crestone Eagle, which I had meant to reach out to because I wanted to get involved, but of course hadn't because I was too busy. I don't know, painting and plastering and um, being exhausted. Uh, But someone reached out to me, thankfully, and asked if I wanted to write for the paper, which I thought was a really awesome idea, and suggested um, a few different ideas. And one of them was to write about Blue Range Ranch, which uh, the founder, George, and the manager there, uh, one of the managers, Sam, uh, is who you're going to hear on the podcast today. But one of the suggested pieces was to go out to this ranch, which is just 20 minutes uh, away from here, and interview them. Uh, which I thought sounded great. And then I thought, well, why don't I just record a podcast at the same time and I'll release the printed sort of shortened version in the paper here and I'll release the elongated podcast version on the podcast. And so I don't know if this is going to become a theme, but I'm super into it. Uh, I feel like, you know, obviously so many of the ideas or so many of the things that are happening here in Crestone, Colorado, where I live in the San Luis Valley, you know, are happening happening in a di- in a different degree. Obviously, we're in different climates and living on different land. But as far as community is concerned, and getting back to the land and figuring out how to work with and live next to one another again, right? These are all things that I know so many of you who are listening are interested in. And so, to sort of take what's happening for me locally and immediate in my immediate vicinity and realm and world, and bring it to the podcast and share it feels so great. Uh, 
and sort of like an obvious idea, <laughs> but a little bit of a revelation as well because it happened kind of accidentally. So yeah, whether or not I do this thing where I'm writing pieces for the Eagles simultaneous to releasing podcasts, that would be great if that continues. Um, but even just bringing people to the podcast who live in Crestone, who I think are inspiring, um, also feels great and aligned and like serves so many purposes. I get to share cool people and cool, cool stories with you and also get to meet people and connect uh, locally. And so if any of you decide to ever move here, you'll like know the whole community <laughs> and where to get all your, your meat and such. Um, so yeah, that's, that's mostly all I'm going to say today. Uh, definitely in a sort of transition period with the podcast, I, I did just reach out to like five or six people though, to be guests. I have, feel like I haven't like done one of those massive reach outs in a long time just because so much has been going on. So there will definitely be non-local, non-Crestone guests on the podcast as well. But this was a really fun opportunity for me to make a connection between um, two things and, yeah, sort of spark some ideas for how I would like to proceed in the future, both growing locally and sustaining a community locally, but also, you know, reaching out and encouraging people to do this themselves or to come here and visit and bring, you know, either stay or bring the skills they learned back to wherever their little world is. So, um, in other news announcements, I believe, uh, or in fact, I know that there are still a few spots left at our sex at dawn retreat in Montana this summer in Whitefish, Montana. This is a retreat that I am co-leading with Chris Ryan, of course, the author of sex at dawn, um, and also Cameron and Malene Shane, who are uh, mixed movement martial artists and uh, have this beautiful property up in Montana where they host teacher trainings for yoga and jujitsu and all sorts of stuff. And we visited them a few years ago. Cameron had uh, Cameron and Malene actually had read Sex at Dawn and were big fans of Chris's and invite us, invited us up there one summer when we were in the van. And we got along so well and decided that it might be really cool to like merge their kind of movement world with our kind of more intellectual world and create this holistic experience where we could bring a group of 20 or so people together to um, have all sorts of really deep conversations about relationships and communication and um, authenticity and courage. And uh, you definitely do not have to be in an open relationship or non-monogamous or polyamorous or whatever thing you use. You can certainly come if you are, but that is not a requirement whatsoever. Um, none of us uh, believe that there's any one relationship structure that is better than any other. To us, it's all about what the foundation of that relationship is and how intentional that is that relationship is and how authentic that relationship is for both people. So those are the topics that we're going to be talking about. And then we're going to be pairing movement exercises, both martial arts um, and just like general somatic practices and some dance that I'll be leading. Uh, so we can explore these concepts in ways that uh, they show up in our bodies, right? Uh, as Erin and I talked about at length in the last podcast, um, there's definitely some disassociation, uh, that occurs when we over-intellectualize stuff. And um, I know I've been uh, guilty of that. And I think probably a lot of you who are listening are also very intellectual and love philosophizing like I do. And it's really important to get back into our bodies and to see how these things are showing up or being processed or actually being learned um, in a real way, not just 
because we know how to say all the words and because we're good at convincing people we have all our shit figured out, which I know is a lot of you (laughs) and me. So there are a few spots left. The retreat is happening in uh, late August. I believe it's August 20th to the 24th. I probably should have pulled up the um, information before I started talking about this. Um, so yes, it is August 20th to August 25th. It's in Whitefish, Montana. The link, uh, to sign up or to apply will be in the episode description. So just feel free to click that. Or if you're in front of your computer or feel like typing something out, it is budokon.com, B-U-D-O-K-O-N.com forward slash events dash sex dash at dash dawn. That is how you apply. And there's lots of information there as well. Um, And if you have any additional information about it, please always feel free to reach out to me, anyakots at gmail.com. You can also always comment on every episode if you have a thought or a complaint or a question um, or just want to share what any of these conversations, these episodes brought up for you, you can actually do that now on Substack. So if you go to Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot Substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com, Anya Kotz dot Substack dot com, you can subscribe totally for free and you'll get an email every time I send out a podcast or any piece of writing that I release. I release lots of extra bonus content on Substack almost kind of maybe more present there than I am on this actual podcast now nowadays. Um, so if you sign up there, you'll get all these, you know, all this bonus content, access to the book club, etc. Um, but you also get the ability to comment on episodes and on posts. Um, and so, yeah, if you have any questions about the retreat or just in general or want to share your thoughts on this episode or what you think about me bringing Crestonians to a millennial's guide to saving the world. Let me know, anyakots.substack.com. I briefly mentioned our book club. We are coming to the end of our May book book club now. Uh, We read Matter and Desire by Andreas Weber, which I'm so excited to talk to everyone about tomorrow. Uh, Next month, we'll be reading Shaman by Kim Stanley Robinson, which is a book that I've been wanting to read for years, honestly, and it's been sitting on my bookshelf. Um, And so I am as per usual, using the book club as a means to uh, keep myself accountable to reading, which is, let's be honest, a huge benefit of the book club. Um, also, honestly, though, like if you guys want to hang out with me or spend time with other people in this community, the book club is the place to do it. I'm having the most fun with the book club, like maybe more so than anything else with this project right now. But I think because it's intimate and because, yeah, it's just a really awesome it's an awesome experience to read books alongside other people and discuss them. I feel like I get so much more out of it. And I feel like I'm sort of mimicking my college, my little liberal arts, Sarah Lawrence college experience, um, where basically we just read books and wrote about them and talked about them. I'm also writing about all the books I read. Wow. I'm just totally recreating college. Uh, but yeah, I send out what I'm reading posts on Substack as well, reviewing books. So if you're not sure if you want to read a book or not, I'll fill you in on whether it's worth it. Uh, but yeah, all of that stuff is on Substack, including the book club. Um, the book club link specifically, because you actually have to sign up. Once you sign up for Substack, you have to like opt into the book club emails because I don't want to annoy people that are, don't want to be a part of this. Um, and so the information about how to set up your account properly so that you get access to the book club emails is, um, again, anyakots.substack.com forward slash book dash club. And that will give you all the information on all the books we're reading through September um, and how to sign up and all that good stuff. 
So yeah, without further ado, so excited to bring you this conversation with George and Sam. I cannot tell you how inspired I was by the not only the work that they do, because I feel like a lot of people are doing this kind of work now, or at least claiming they're doing this kind of work, but the longevity of how long uh, George's family has been in this valley feels extremely important. And yeah, just it's refreshing to meet people and be able to spend time with people who are clearly doing the work and doing the thing as opposed to just, you know, talking about it in, you know, in comfy chairs and conference rooms and such. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I am going to play you in to today's episode with a Hermanos Gutierrez song, El Jardín, The Garden, which felt appropriate. Uh, and also because it felt like a segue and kind of related to the fact that I'm going to see Hermanos Gutierrez in Denver on September 19th, I believe it is, with a bunch of people. And I'm super stoked because uh, I'm super into Hermanos Gutierrez and have been for a long time. I've never seen them live and get to go with a bunch of friends. Um, and it's happening right after the Crestone Energy Fair, uh, which I've been helping out with a bit this year, which is this huge educational, fun, amazing fair festival workshoppy thing uh, dedicated to alternative building, natural building, uh, super inspiring. All sorts of amazing people are going to come. Jake and Marin from Death in the Garden, uh, Bobby Gill from the Savory Institute. Basically, I just uh, convinced all of my podcast guests and friends to come present at the Energy Fair uh, and come hang out. Uh, so this is my way of saying to come hang out. It's happening September 16th and 17th, and uh, Blue Range Ranch is also going to be there and going to be giving a talk. Uh, so yeah, super exciting all around. Hope to meet more of you in person, in Crestone, or elsewhere, uh, at the retreat, perhaps. And yeah, enjoy the song, enjoy this conversation, and I will catch you on the other side.
with Sam and George, and um, I'm at Blue Range Ranch. Really grateful to be sitting down with you both, and this is a first for me, recording a podcast and also simultaneously writing a piece for the Crestone Eagle, uh, being that Crestone is where I live now, so that's a really cool thing for me to focus on like what's going on in my immediate local vicinity. Um, so yeah, I'd love, maybe we can just start with you both introducing yourselves and George, maybe talk a little bit about your background. Was ranching something that you grew up in or came to later in life? And like, what was, yeah, the story behind this ranch? Oh, thank you. Um, glad to be here. Uh, hi, my name is George Whitten and I were setting in a in a house that's about uh, 100 feet away from where my grandfather built his first homestead in 1893. Wow. And so our family's been here off and on uh, in on this piece of ground right here. Uh, a little bit of a history there, but uh, it's uh, for that long. And mm-hmm. so we have ranched and been pastoralists basically since the beginning. He was a sheep uh, operator and put together quite a bit of land, you know, back in the early 19, late 1800s, 1900s. And, and then my father took that operation over and, um, I left the operation for a while and then came back to it and have been in it ever since. I've pretty much been managing this operation since 1975 or so, uh, started pretty young and, um, I've been fortunate enough to be, to live here. I get up every day just in love with this place and where we are and what we do. And so that's kind of my background. Amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, also happy to be here. Um, Not from here. I grew up in Manhattan, New York. Um, Sorry, I was born. Really? Great. Um, Yeah, so long, long ways from where I grew up. Uh, My partner, Noelle, and I, ended up out here through the Kavura Coalition's new agrarian program, which is an apprenticeship program for regenerative agriculture, mostly ranching, mostly cattle ranching. Mm-hmm. But um, there are some, you know, there's an organic farms and, you know, tree farms, et cetera, as well, mm-hmm. who are involved in this program. But, uh, yeah, George and Julie were founding members of that and, been doing that for I think over a decade at this point and um yeah Noel and I found this program applied uh ended up coming out here in early 2020 and have been here ever since so cool I mean you said you guys have been doing this for the past decade or so is that regenerative agriculture or this program specifically that you signed up through um I meant the program. Yeah, the I program. think they they've been George and Julie have been doing I guess what's now called regenerative right. agriculture <laughs> for a lot longer than it was called regenerative right. agriculture. Right. So right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, let's I'd love to talk a little bit about that. The history with that is that how your family, you know, started out and unlike some other ranchers in the area, what kept you guys in the regenerative space? Well, we were we were raised to be very frugal mm. so buying fertilizer and machinery was always have to run that through a really fine filter to make right. sure that it actually makes sense yeah and so we never really went down that path a whole lot mm. and um 
I was fortunate enough in the mid-'80s to run into a fellow by the name of Alan Savory, mm-hmm. who uh, changed my view. He didn't change my view. What he did was give me the language to talk about the way that we practiced agriculture. Because uh, my father, uh, we ran sheep, and we, we started here, right here in this area with sheep, with a big band of sheep, and they migrated into the mountains every summer, mm-hmm. way up into the Baldies above Creed and clear up above Lake City and then came back with fat lambs in the fall. And we we inherited that operation from the Hispanic people that were here before us and that who my grandfather bought his sheep from. Mm. And so that <clears throat> that was a traditional way of, of pastoral way of going about right. making a living here. And so that's the way we came about it, and we all loved that. Uh, but in the 50s and 60s, that got harder and harder and harder yeah. to to drive sheep through forest service. You know, our family was here before there was a forest service or a BLM or any of that. So, right. um, but with all of that and then all the people that came in, it became impossible really to, to migrate through the country like that. So, mm-hmm. and my father, um, he lost his sheep permits. Basically the forest service kind of kicked the sheep off because sheep weren't popular back in those days. Mm-hmm. And he had no way to, argue with them he didn't understand the environmental impacts or any of that you know that was all language that was new to him he was a world war ii veteran who was very damaged by the war and Mm -hmm. and hadn't didn't have a lot of faith in the government anyway and so he he kind of lost his heart for it and that's why i sort of took it over at a pretty young age and um and so that's the way we came up and then when i ran into alan savory what he did was sort of give me the language to be able to talk about the relationship between ungulates and grasslands and how they evolve together. Mm-hmm. And that our job is really just to manage that relationship, not not have dominance over either the soil, the grass, or the livestock. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way we've... And it, it fit my personality, and that's why I'm, I love getting up here every morning because it's always, you know, we're, we're, we never have to kill anything except the animals when we harvest... Right. And, you know, we don't spray, we don't plow, we don't do anything like that. And uh, we take the world as it comes to us. Mm-hmm. That's the way a pastoralist sees the world is, you know, they move out into the landscape and harvest with their animals and without altering things very much. And if they're good at that, they understand the plants and they, they don't overgraze and they move on and they, it's, it's a sustainable system. Um, and for those who aren't super familiar, I also love Alan Savory, I'm a big fan. Um, I also had uh, interviewed several years ago the folks over at Parker Pastures in Gunnison. Um, but yeah, for those who aren't super familiar, the word regenerative, I would love to hear how you guys define that or you know how it is defined both from a sort of ecosystem perspective. Um, I know it's inc- incredibly complex, <laughs> so do your best or, you know, you know, talk as long as you'd like um but also from a community perspective sort of tying it back to the san luis valley and and um you know the human regenerative system as well how those kind of things interact with one another yeah so i think like a good way to you know to connect it to alan savory but this idea of like holism and thinking about systems and relationships rather than discrete 
parts of those systems. And that's really kind of, you know, like what George was just talking about. It's all about managing these, the interrelatedness of, of things and recognizing that, you know, there's a tremendous amount of complexity in working with that complexity rather than trying to simplify it and work against it. And I think one of the, you know, that if you want to sum up kind of the 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 detrimental effects of you know conventional agriculture or just maybe even more broadly like how humans relate to the world yeah. not just the natural world but just the world in general it's that we have this you know bias towards trying to oversimplify and quantify and narrow and are very uncomfortable with this idea that maybe this, you know, there's a complexity beyond what we can perceive individually and in trying to uh, kind of force the world to fit this narrow kind of myopic view and then manage accordingly. And obviously there are all these unintended, mostly negative consequences from doing that, like, you know, loss of biodiversity, soil loss, also, you know, rural communities, kind of degrading or you know people finding themselves you know there there's there's consolidation and simplification and mm -hmm. more and more both on the human side and the natural side are kind of forced out and no longer part of the part of the picture I think and yeah. so I think that regenerative agriculture is kind of recognizing that it really the reality is the opposite that, you know, we have these really complex communities that involve both humans, animals, plants, mineral, you know, just this, this whole that you need to operate within and kind of through that recognition, I think, um, hopefully get back to a more in balance whole because, you know, if you focus too much on one aspect to the exclusion of others, you're going to end up with a system that's out of whack. Um, and that's what, where we are, I think in general. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a super humbling process too? I imagine to like approach things and working with what is and recognizing that everything kind of has this, <laughs> you know, this order unto itself. Um, like, I don't know. I feel like that's such a, the, the misunderstanding of nature and how things are kind of ordered in this beautiful way is part of the issue. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Do you, and as far as like what you guys are doing in this Valley, I'd love to hear about that more specifically too. Like what are the unique um, aspects of this land in particular? Maybe that you know, you focus on a lot or something that's difficult that, you know, yeah, like what is regenerative agriculture in the San Luis Valley look like? Well, you know, we're very involved in the, in the community in many ways. I'm the, I'm actually a, the regional ag commissioner for the state of Colorado. Mm. Um, so that's a big job yeah. of mine is to, you know, to think about agriculture writ large mm -hmm. over the whole state. And I, I'm, was on the commission for four years and then was recently appointed as the regional act commissioner under Kate Greenberg and who I love working with and that, you know, I'm very proud of the work that the commission is doing mm -hmm. towards regenerative agriculture with mm. the workforce program and soil health initiatives and the STAR program and all those things that trying to get farmers to think about their soil as a living thing and, 
and if nothing else, just giving it water holding capacity so that with the way water is today, it's, um, it's you know, we, as much as we can get out of that water, the better. And, um, you know, I've always thought about, I, I like to point out to people that conventional agriculture is about turning the, changing the, the world to fit a machine. So you're thinking about a harvester in the end that can harvest a monoculture, and that's a very efficient way to to do agriculture, and that's the way we've become. That's the only way we understand. And so by simplifying, you know, and having a, a single crop of vegetables or grain or whatever it is out there, that's a very simple, straightforward thing. Mm-hmm. And we spend a lot of time making sure that there's only one thing out there. Right. And so they use herbicides and pesticides and other things, but you create a, in that monoculture, you create a, a habitat for things to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And so anytime you, an organism gets in that, that thrives in that monoculture, then you're in trouble. And, and so, um, or whether it's trying to be efficient with water. Efficiency is our enemy in the San Luis Valley. Center pivot irrigation with its high efficiencies dewatered the aquifer because yeah. there's no return to the aquifer. You consume, you know, 85 to 90% of that water that comes out of the ground is consumed in the evapotranspiration of that crop very efficiently. And you, you very efficiently raise a crop but at the same time, we very efficiently dewatered the aquifer. Right. And so I've been involved in that whole process with the subdistricts and trying to get the, the, the valley's aquifer system into a sustainable level that can last for perpetuity. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really proud of our community for going about that because one of the few places in the West that even recognizes right. the connection of groundwater and surface water and Trying to deal with that, I have to tell you, has been a real challenge, um, and it's an ongoing one. But in the end, we're going to have to dry up some large number of acres in the San Luis Valley. Uh, so that is a. It, it's been in my life. I've seen the rise and fall of industrial agriculture before my eyes, mm-hmm. and uh, part of that is due to science and efficiency and the economics of certain crops and and the way those things all manifest in the management of the landscape. And so here on this ranch, we basically, we use groundwater a great deal. So we're in sub-district number five up here. And so we just this year have a fully approved uh, augmentation plan that was approved by the state. And so the wells are mitigating their impacts of the surface rights. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I'm I'm proud of that work that's been going on for 15 years or more, um, and it's it'll it'll never end. You know we're always needing to modify that and and learn more about the aquifer, how these things interrelate. But as a community, we have come together in a way to try to survive as a community and and uh, be very f- efficient in certain ways with this resource, but also understand that the aquifer has a right. Yeah. And the and the streams have a right, and you know nature has a right as well, or otherwise we can't survive. Yeah. Do you have something to add? I was just gonna say I think George touched on something that's kind of the important to recognize is a real challenge with you know whether you want to call it regenerative agriculture or just like 
resource management and kind of putting, you know, it's all well and good and it's, and it's right in a lot of ways to acknowledge the whole and that, like George just said, that these, you know, not just have this consumptive attitude towards natural resources in the natural world, but I think the real challenge with agriculture in general and especially kind of putting a priority on that is that you're still we still produce what's effectively a, a commodity like in agriculture what you you are producing food and that's your main or not necessarily food but you're growing something mm-hmm. and so having all of these values and these you know, this approach to stewardship that definitely can benefit your bottom line, but also ultimately you need to make a living and you need to produce something to sell. And there aren't really like frameworks. I mean, increasingly maybe moving in that direction with like ecosystem service payments, this concept of paying people to actually do the stewardship, not just pay them for a byproduct of the stewardship, which you can look at grass-fed beef as being the byproduct. You know, if you're taking care of the soil, taking care of the the animals, you're going to have this delicious product that you can market. But you still need to market it and you still need to sell it. And that's not kind of directly – doesn't really sum up a lot of what we do. And so I think, like George was saying, it's really challenging with a community where, you know, you people, I'm sure, you know, no one – in the San Luis Valley, I'm sure denies that water is a limited resource and it would be good to even like people that use a lot of it, industrial producers, but ultimately you need to make a living. And so that's, I just in general, I guess I, yeah, that's the challenge I think facing regenerative agriculture is that we need to kind of figure out how to incentivize acting according to these values um, beyond just compensating people for the product that they right. that they produce. So are you saying that there's like somewhat of a disconnect between the regenerative work that you're doing and the sort of secondary thing, which is that you need to produce this product in order to support the work that you're doing? Like, like for example, if, yeah. if, if this kind of operation was like you were being paid for it, let's say the money was coming in and this sort of an operation was, you know, feeding a small group of X number of people, Mm -hmm. right? Instead of like, we need to sustain ourselves and live, but also feed. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if there's a, a disconnect necessarily, but I think like just a lot of what we do is framed in like a broader sense about, you know, stewardship. And there's a real necessity kind of, you you touched on this, but so that all being the case, then there's still this necessity to try and, you know, market and grow a, a beef business and spend a lot of time creating something that is, um, is going to sustain that other, you know, yeah. those other efforts. And they're not, it's not that they're disconnected. I guess it's just kind of, again, this kind of narrow, you know, I think in general with 
you know, quote unquote regenerative producers, what they do is so much broader than just what they produce. Mm-hmm. I guess you could sum it up that way where yeah. I think being yeah. able to be sustain yourself based on the stewardship that you do and not that just be kind mm-hmm. of a affect the bottom line of whatever you're producing is kind of the direction we need to go in. Yeah. I don't know if that, oh, that makes sense. Makes sense and yeah. I don't yeah, know. and I didn't mean like a a disconnect as mean as in they're not related, but it does feel like you're managing kind of these two things, you know, and it takes like a lot of time and energy and skill to run a business, you know, a beef business, as you said, yeah. coupled with the time and dedication and yeah. knowledge it takes on the. Yeah. There, there are several businesses here. Yeah. You know, most of us are cattle people around here in the cow calf business and they, they have cows and they sell their calves in the fall. Yeah. We chose quite a few years back to keep those calves, which doubled our numbers and made us without income mm-hmm. that year. And if we did it all at once, for instance, and then we gradually built into a stalkering business where the, those animals are ran out and run to yearlings. And then we've partnered with farmers down in the, all over the San Luis Valley down here who primarily raise potatoes and they need to have the livestock on their land to help regenerate that soil and Mm -hmm. and build the organic matter so that the water holding capacity in the soil is alive and all of those things and so we've we've developed some really cool relationships with some farmers uh, primarily right now the jones family farm Mm -hmm. in uh, around hooper and they're organic potato growers and they uh, have cattle on their land almost year round of some sort and they raise cover crops for us and help us expand off of this ranch in, into that part of the community to help them build soil and help us finish the animals to a point where then we can harvest them. Mm-hmm. And and we also, there's, a you know, two local processors that we work with, Salazar's in, in Manassa and, and then Westcliff Meats over in Westcliff who are local, uh, really kind of up-and-coming local processors mm-hmm. that have done, we've got a great relationship with them. And so we create jobs there, you know, we're working together, all of us, to take this very local product, keep it as local as we possibly can, and enhance the resource in the process, and then wind up with some meat to sell. Yeah, awesome, cool. Yeah, we're a certified organic, I guess we should have said this from the outset, but a certified (laughs) organic, um, 100% grass-fed, grass-finished calf to finish meaning we have you know the animals here for their entire lives Mm. um beef operation so we're just cattle um we also have a a a global animal partnership um humane uh handling certification so that's you know just they make they audit us and make sure that we're taking good care of, of the animals. And then we also have a, um, the, uh, a certification through the Audubon society. So we're a certified bird friendly ranch. Um, meaning that we, a lot of management that we do is focused on ecosystem health and bird habitat, et cetera. Um, we have, Oh, about 120, pairs so you know the cow herd is about 120 cows um right now we've got 14 
bulls that were from you know the same herd these are home raised bulls and we'll be selling some of them we don't we don't need all of those but um mm-hmm. that's kind of something that we're we're dipping our toes into is is marketing the genetics because they're so well adapted to this place in a tough environment but at the same time can also produce really fantastic beef and do really well really low input mm-hmm. um animals um so yeah these particular animals that you have have been in this valley for quite some time multiple generations yeah you know know, it's it's built on a herd of cattle that we got from our families had all these years and so they're very adapted and then we're very focused on on those animals being adapted to this we don't um, if you're certified organic, you obviously can't use a pesticide or anything like that on them or uh, uh, antibiotics, that kind of thing. So uh, we've learned over the years that uh, genetics is everything, and not every animal in the herd is affected by, let's say, lice, for instance, or some sort of an internal parasite. That, and so most people just treat the whole herd which then affects the manure, which comes out the back end, which then affects the microorganism in the soil, which, you know, you have all these things that happen when you focus on one thing like that. And so by focusing on the genetics of the animals that can thrive and aren't affected, even though they might have some of those parasites, they're not affected by them negatively particularly. They're just part of the animal, like we are, you know. And uh, so... Focusing on those genetics, keeping really good records. We use they're fairly high tech in that realm. We use a ultrasound technique on every animal that, so that we can determine how tender they're going to be and how they're marbled and what the ribeye shape is and all of that. When they're about a year old, we they get an ultrasound exam, and then based on that, we've we've selected for animals that are really well marbled and and high quality beef. But at the same time, that animal has to thrive and live here and be able to raise a calf every year and and produce, yeah. you know, on a limited resource. We don't put up any hay. All of our hay is is cycled right back into the soil where it came from. We won't sell hay. We do custom graze for other people. We'll say sell hay that way, mm-hmm. but you have to bring your cow because mm-hmm. we need that cow here. We don't want to haul the hay away. Right. And so um, that's a big part of our operation is cycling nutrients back into the soil through a ruminant, which is the cattle. But they have to be adapted here. And uh, so I'd love for you to talk, expand a little bit more about the work you're doing with the local community. I know the food bank, like if you could kind of talk about the, the outreach. And I would say also how you're supporting the community in that way, but also maybe talk about like what are some of the the hurdles um, how can the community support you also um and like where do you see all of that going yeah well, i think yeah just to piggyback on what george said and you know what we were just talking about but i think this in kind of everything that we do we're thinking about this place and like where our sense of place and this community that we belong to both again, ecological, but also human community. And I think, um, you know, we don't really, you know, in thinking about what our kind of values and mission is, it's not like we want to be 
shipping beef nationally right. and just be another grass-fed, grass-finished beef producer. But we really are trying to focus regionally on, you know, and regionally meaning the San Luis Valley and a little bit beyond, but really thinking about how we can keep the product that we raise and be part of that regional economy and support the our neighbors. Um, and so we like George said for a long time, he and Julie and, you know, since, since Noel and I have been here, have had a direct market meat business and sold beef directly to consumer, um, which is, is, uh, is great. And, you know, we really do focus on selling to people who are in the San Luis Valley and, you know, Chafee County. But, um, I think what's been really exciting kind of since, um, I guess really was a product of, of COVID, but um, kind of some of these other opportunities to reach more people and people who wouldn't otherwise have the financial ability to, you know, purchase our meat directly. And so we have had um, a really successful and fruitful working relationship with the Crestone Food Bank Um and we're able to sell a fair amount of beef last year and the year before to the food bank. Um, and they had grant funds um, that were, you know, earmarked for local buying. We've also done something similar with uh, La Puente in, in Alamosa. Um, and, yeah, I think it's a really great, kind of not balance but but uh but a kind of other avenue to the the meat the direct market business i mean we can sell directly to consumer but we can also sell to these institutions or entities that can distribute that meat which is nutrient dense really fantastic you know high quality to people that are food insecure and there's a tremendous amount of food insecurity in the San Luis Valley. Um, and most times with food banks, people are eating, you know, it's a lot of processed food, really, you know, stuff that is not nutritious is not, is, um, you know, if they're getting meat, my sense is that it's, you know, old, you know, whatever these big, you know, like big box stores or, you know, it's, it's, it's been in the kind of food bank pipeline for several weeks or whatever. So this was really meaningful, I think, to be able to get people food that's really high quality and, um, who, again, who wouldn't otherwise be able to access that. And, um, but therein the challenge, which we talk about a lot is that this is, this isn't, it's reliant upon temporary funding, you know, like this is there, there are grant funds available that maybe allow for, um, one, you know, whatever the scope of the grant is, but like a one-off purchase or a, you know, temporary, you know, we're going to be able to buy X amount for as long as we have funding and maybe we'll get a renewal on this grant or maybe not. So I think that's kind of the, the direction that things uh that's one of the the limiting factors i guess is is the sources of funding um and you know as much as we would love to be able to just donate 
beef we 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 need to make a living and so it's not in order for us to to do this work there needs to be some sort of you know exchange and i think that's uh that's one of the challenges um i think it's also you know it seems like there's some movement in that direction at least not necessarily with food banks but i know definitely with other institutions like schools like with the passing of what is it prop ff last year um kind of earmarking a permanent funding pool for institutions like schools to buy locally um and that will be that's from you know closing a tax loophole in the state and so hopefully that will be kind of a a solution to that issue not necessarily again with food banks but through school lunches be able to supply schools in the area and hopefully feed a lot of kids that Mm -hmm. way that's kind of the what we're what we're looking at and working with the mountain valley school in swatch and talk to you know schools in castilla county and further south and then in chafee county as well so that's something that we're we're working on but um yeah i don't know if you have anything to no I, th- I think it's it's people need to un- understand like i think right now if you go to the grocery store and you compare our prices with organic grass-fed beef in the grocery store we're cheaper than they are yeah you know and uh there are many things about our production process that should be sustainable and should be actually more done more economically than the feedlot system but the feedlot system doesn't have to pay for the for the you know the the unintended consequences of all that kind of agriculture (laughs) and so it's it's all supported through commodity grain prices and the way that that whole world is established and um you know a, a big plant like the jbs plant in up in denver i don't know they're running 400 400 head of animals an hour, you know, and our processors do 15 head, you know, a week. And it's all done by hand by skilled butchers. And so our processing costs are obviously more, but we're happy to pay those people for their skill and their hard work. And so, but we, we can't compete with a, with a JBS or a Tyson or, you know, somebody like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't even want to intend to do that because we would have to recreate some sort of a system that is devalues somebody along the along the way. And so, you know, people need to understand that when they're buying our meat, they're not just paying us; they're paying yeah. a lot of other people. Right. Yeah, that's kind of what I was trying to get at before, which is that there's this single avenue, and people, I think, oftentimes, like George was saying, you're thinking about it in terms of like, okay. Here's for I'm paying this amount for one pound of ground beef, and then if I go to Walmart, I can pay right. whatever. I mean, not like X amount. And I think it's really important to think about okay, so in doing that, what are you actually paying for? And on the one hand, I think, like, you know, George just said, I mean, we're for us, I mean, we like to think you're, you're, you're supporting ecological stewardship but also a a local regional economy where there are other businesses and people that we rely on here that are 
receiving a, a, a portion of that food dollar that you're spending versus, you know, sure, you may be spending less per pound or even more depending on the product you're getting in the store. But like that money is going to a multinational corporation and is not staying in the, you know, in the area that these animals raise and the money's being spent. Um, and then there are all these other externalized costs as well, environmental, social that are, you know, kind of emerge from that food production, uh, sphere. And so, um, yeah, I guess getting, you know, this kind of idea of like the complexity of the whole, we can, you know, here's, that's a kind of a good, uh, uh, I think it applies here as well, where we think about what we do and what, you know, in spending money on food, it's just a one-to-one exchange, like money for food and getting this good, but it's really, you know, that, that, that pound of ground beef that you're getting is part of like a much more complex system. And I think that there's a lot of good that can be done there through use of food dollars. And then there's also like, you know, not so much good. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I find it hard sometimes to like try to convince people around why it's important or why they should buy things locally. And like, because so much of, so much about it to me is yes, the tangible aspect of supporting the local economy and, you know, um, all of that, but also like, it just feels better. Like it feels way better to be here sitting in front of you guys. Right. Um, and, and to know, and yeah, I'd love to like, you know, uh, how can people who can afford to pay for the beef and simultaneously support what you're doing, um, get access to this product? Like, are you guys mostly offering cow shares? Are you selling, um, you know, different cuts in various stores? Like how can the local community support you and, um, in that sense? And yeah, well, we do kind of everything. I mean, we do sell, um, we do both, we can do anywhere from a whole animal to, you know, 10 pounds of ground beef or a few steaks, you know, we, um, Blue Range Ranch, which is the, you know, again, the meat business here. Um, we sell throughout the San Luis Valley and, you know, surrounding areas. Um, our website is blurangeranch.com, and that's a good way to get a sense for what we offer. Um, we offer some, you know, variety bundles for sale on there, mm-hmm. but also you can email us and call us and if you want something different. So really whatever, whatever people are looking for, we're happy to do. Um, and then we're also kind of beyond the San Luis Valley. We're also part of Sweetgrass Co-op, which is a, a group of, um, ranchers with similar land ethic and cattle, you know, beef raising approaches, you know, all hundred percent grass fed mm-hmm. in, Colorado and New Mexico and George and Julie were founding members of that. And that is how, if you wanted to get our beef shipped, they, they do Hmm. that kind of fulfillment, but anywhere, you know, regionally getting in touch with, with us and directly. Um, and then also, I mean, just getting back to the, the, the food bank, um, kind of relationships. I mean, something that we've 
we've uh, thought about is just, you know, if people are interested in, in making a donation, we can then pass that beef on, you know, if people want to buy beef and we can donate it to the food bank or, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a way that we can kind of work around the food bank's funding limitations as well. And, um, we do have like a reduced price for the food bank for, Mm -hmm. for meat that we offer them. But, um, yeah. So blueranchranch.com. Cool. And is it more like affordable if people are buying in bulk, like doing a share type of thing? And does that happen on a seasonal basis or if someone just says like, I want to buy a cow share and split it? What are the stipulations? Yeah, it is more affordable. It's, um, you, you get a significant discount, uh, price per pound, the, the more you buy. Um, we can do that pretty much year round. All of our beef is USDA processed and we, um, so that allows us to sell, you know, directly the beef directly to consumer rather than if you're using custom processing, you're essentially selling a live animal to someone who is then getting it processed at the processor. And part of the, the issue there is that you don't know, um, you don't know quite how much beef you're going to get because yield depends on the animal. And you, you know, it's, it's just a little bit more of a complicated process. And so what we decided to do is just go get all of our beef USDA process. So it's all, you know, both Salazar's and Westcliff, they have a USDA inspector on site. And we also have a 40 foot shipping container freezer, which allows us to hold a lot of meat on hand and, you know, process more animals at a time. And so the the real benefit there is that we're able to take animals when they're kind of at, at peak quality, when they're finished, have them processed and then um, have them in the freezer. And so we we kind of, we, we schedule and my partner Noel is really great at this, but is, you know, schedule our processing dates, um, you know, really to have the best quality beef that we we can, um, on hand and have, you know, as much as we, we need at any given time in the freezer. So that's allowed for a lot more flexibility and, um, yeah. And so if people are interested in getting a, a bulk share, they really just need to give us a call. There's no, long wait time or anything and it's really straightforward it's just a matter of us putting it together Mm -hmm. and and them coming and picking it up so cool yeah that's awesome um and as far as people getting involved in other ways in the local community do you guys have programs where people can come do like workstay stuff or if they just want to check out the ranch and see how you guys do things do you i'm sure you have work to give to people. We, we have, yeah, we have work to do. <laughs> um, we love to have people come and I love to jump up on my soapbox and talk about what we do. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're, we can't, people can't just show up yeah. randomly. Yeah. Uh, we have several workshops planned for the summer. Uh, one with, uh, holistic management international are going to be here, uh, not exactly sure of the date right at the moment, mm-hmm. but um, 
you know, so there'll be that, that's an opportunity that you have to pay to come to that event and we'll spend two days, us with others, some other speakers as well, um, and focused on soil health and holistic resource management and, and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, we also have, um, you know, I imagine CDA will probably have a soil health thing here this summer. We work a lot with Patrick O'Neill, soil health specialist in the Valley around that. And, uh, we're using a, a new kind of compost, which is static compost, which is a fungal-based compost rather than bacterial. Mm. And uh, we, uh, we're really excited about what might be uh, some of the things we could learn from that. Cool. And so, yeah. And on a tangible level, you know, working with the soil in this way in this valley, like, especially over this amount of time, can you kind of see the... <laughs> you know, the difference between land that's well-managed and soil. That's, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just satellite photos are very obvious mm. of our property line. Yeah. 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 It's, it's quite obvious that uh, there's more ground cover. It's a little yeah. greener. It's a little different looking. Yeah. And also just the amount of water that we use to produce a certain amount of feed is far less than what most people would just because we have, you know, healthy soils that can hold right. hold the water and so you can be a lot more judicious with yeah. there's not a, yeah, there's not a lot of waste. Um, and you said something I wanted to circle back about like drying up certain acres of the valley due to the deep. Can you expand upon what you mean by that? Like what acres that are being used for agricultural purposes? just because we don't have enough water like yeah that, that's primarily what i was talking about is in yeah. the central part of the valley where there are all the center pivots are yeah there's about over three thousand center pivot irrigation systems in the san luis valley that evolved from the 70s through the 80s and they're still you know they're not putting any new ones on they're basically shutting a lot of them down but a lot of those don't have surface water rights yeah and so they don't bring any surface water into the system they were they were just wells were drilled and then these farms were created with just groundwater only and so yeah. and because they're very efficient and they expanded out over a lot of land that wasn't historically irrigated by uh, diverting the Rio Grande River then so they don't bring any water into the system and so then they they're in excess of what the inflows are right. pretty simple yeah uh, but a very complex. <laughs> Uh, way of trying to deal with that because it has to do with water rights and ownership and property and and um, people's lives, yeah. you know, their their livelihoods and their lives and and all of that. And so, it's um it's been a long process, but we're trying to sort of pay farmers to not farm basically and to shut a lot of that acreage down yeah. and. Uh, because we're going to have to do something. We can't continue the way we are. Um, and uh, there's a, there's actually a Supreme Court decision and a mandate from the from the water uh, the state that we have to have this in balance within a very short time by 2030, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's coming up real fast. And and they have not been able to get it under control completely, but they're they're working on it really hard. Um, and that's primarily subdistrict number one, which is uh, down there. Subdistrict number five, the one I'm in, is a little different. We are considered sustainable by the state. Mm -hmm. Most of the land up here is flood irrigated, so there's all that waste 
have 50% of the water that's going back into the aquifer all the time. Okay. So it's not, we don't have that efficiency. And that was just due to the soil types mm -hmm. and the fact that potatoes weren't ever raised up here. Right. Uh, or vegetables a bit, you know. Vegetable farming is really hard on the soil because of the harvesting techniques a lot of times. And yeah. So, um, so that that's why we're very keen on getting livestock reintroduced to agriculture, right? And and bringing that component back in and trying to help farmers become a little more self reliant on their soils and their their local system rather than having to purchase inputs from everywhere else. And 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 basically, in order to survive, they have to use everything up. They yeah. can't. There, there's no. They can't leave anything out in the field. Yeah. You know, that's just the uh, the way they're taught at universities, that they have to be very efficient. And that that super efficiency leaves nothing for the for the work, you know, for yeah. the planet. Yeah, and, not really how nature works. <laughs> yeah, and that's not how nature works. So nature's working. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. that's getting harder and harder to do all the time. Right. And is there, like, there's this, I think, misconception that a lot of people have that if we could just, like, leave the planet alone, it would do fine without us. But I'm curious if there's opportunities for people, like, to regenerate soil here. Like, could we actually participate and add to um, regenerating the soil in this valley and elsewhere, but specifically here? Yeah, I think that's a huge misconception yeah. that has kind of... Proliferated. <laughs> proliferated and kind of plagued like the conversation around conservation for a long time is that well if we just remove people then somehow will re nature will revert to some edenic oh. ideal and that's just not true i mean again these interrelated relationships and we don't live we live in a world where every square inch is affected by humans and even before industrial society, I mean, landscapes were affected by people. And so it's that's just a, a fallacy, I think. And so that's where I think what's important is management and kind of harmonious management, you know, and th thinking about how we can benefit natural systems and work within them rather than against them. And so... Um, I mean, if you go out and look at, you know, there are lots of places in the San Luis Valley where there hasn't been any tillage and no grazing animals and nothing for decades. And I challenge you to find a place like that that looks like it's healthy and is thriving um, compared to a really, you know, a, a, a carefully managed grazing um, system or farm, you know, somewhere where there's actually intentional management. Um and, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's important to recognize is that, is that this is a, we can't recuse ourselves from the natural world and by doing nothing, we're still doing something. And yeah. so, so if like more people were to come in to this area and like want to engage in that way with the land, is there room and space for that? Right. Like because of the the water issue, um, you know, is it, is there like room to, to still, you know, create new ranches or farms that are engaging with the landscape more harmoniously? Um, or are we sort of at a risk of adding any more of that to? Well, that's a, that's a kind of a complicated thing. Um, yeah. you know, we're, 
the the new agrarian program, which my wife Julie is a you know a principal mover in that through Covera Coalition, is our mission is to bring people who are not in agriculture back into agriculture and and yeah. give them the skills to to thrive. Yeah. Uh, moving out here in the middle of nowhere and <laughs> plopping down and thinking you're going to homestead somehow is not a very good idea. Um, I think what's going to have to happen is that we're going to have to sort of repurpose some of the large industrial farms, mm -hmm. and hopefully we can wind up with multiple families on one large landscape that has that is watered and has some ability to grow things. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, we, we're agriculture right now is becoming so high-tech that the cost of the technology drives the value of the food. Um, mm. And technology is expensive, and so and you have to do it at scale, and so you wind up it drives people off of the land, and so fewer and fewer people manage larger and larger parcels of land using a lot of technology, a lot of big machinery, a lot of um, high tech things, and th that technology costs money, and uh, and it's always very specific and it only works in a really clean environment. You know, generally, as with all things that are scientific, it's one thing that you're focused on, and yeah. you remove all the other chaos. Yeah. But you wind up with true chaos after a while because yeah. you know it's it's out of balance. And so, my big concern is moving animals into confinement, moving lettuce into confinement, raising everything in greenhouses with super efficient. Right. Drip irrigation, you know, that's sort of where they, we think that we're going to go. Yeah. And the problem with that is like anytime you have a concentration of any kind of a nutrient and you have something that likes that nutrient that gets in there, you're going to be in trouble and you're going to lose. It's like the, the highly pathogenic avian influenza that's going through the country now mm -hmm. that's in the wild bird population is really devastating to confine chicken operations because they're all locked in one place. Mm -hmm. And so they have no way to get away from it. Uh, it's killed a few backyard flocks, but very few. Uh, and, you know, so animals that are just out in, in their environment just have much more ability to survive rather than trying to protect them from these pathogens and put them inside someplace and then... It, that just gets to be harder and harder. Just rather. like people. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And so, yes, exactly. So getting people back out on the land, yeah. getting their hands in the soil, let them bend over and do some hard work, feel at the end of the day like they've really accomplished something and, and that their life has value, I really think that's an important thing. I think mm -hmm. especially for young men today, they've been sort of removed uh, – from that kind of work and they're taught that they shouldn't pick up a shovel and that's, you know, that's work for lo lower people. And, you know, and so they crawl inside of a computer and look out at the world and become angry. And I, I really have a deep feeling that agriculture on a scale like that could really help a lot of people, yeah. you know, create much healthier, much more robust, local, sustainable, communities i also think in that context what's really important is thinking about collaboration rather than people just like to answer you know what you were saying like how do people how can they do this and like george was saying the answer is not come out and buy a 40 acre lot and think that oh i'm going to get two cows and this is going to be my little pocket i mean 
that's not how these landscapes work. You're not like we need to kind of think about, you know, things on a landscape scale. And I think one of the biggest issues in the West is, you know, compartmentalization and, you know, division of these kind of broader landscapes and ecosystems into little 40 acre, you know, ranchettes and with lots of fences and stuff. And that's not to say that, like George was saying, like, it's not to say that people shouldn't come back onto the land and can't be part of it. And it's like, oh, we just need fewer people here and more people and more consolidation where you have fewer people managing much greater acreage. But I think the way to look at it is that how can we collaborate on management on a much larger scale? I mean, you know, the name of the game in grazing is impact, like grazing and then rest. And in the West, in the arid West, that rest period is going to need to be a lot longer than it is in the East or the Midwest just because of water. Um, and so, you know, if you think about, okay, how do you achieve that? Well, it's like to a certain degree, it's, it's a matter of where can the animals go and not come back too soon. And so if you have a very confined space, you're not you're never going to be able to achieve that yeah. versus you know if you're thinking about like you know George brought up like it, it doesn't need to be that I have like a 40,000 acre ranch and that's the only way this works but maybe it's we're bringing the cattle down to a farm circle where they're going cover crops for you know and working on that ground while the grass up here is recovering and kind of thinking about collectively as a community how we can better steward ground again collaboratively rather than everyone trying to do it themselves. I think that's yeah. the real, the real linchpin there. Yeah. Yeah. I was saying before about like the humility of it all, you know, to, I was thinking about the animals that have like been here over all these generations and like their bodies have really like learned how to work with the land. And I feel mm-hmm. like we also have a bit of like hubris and we think we can just kind of come in and like dominate something, even Mm -hmm. if we have good principles, um, and to like talk with people like you and, um, yeah, just to like get to know a place and a landscape and how to live on it for humans during this time is going to uphill battle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It needs respect. And it goes back long ways back and clear back to, you know, our whole idea of property, and boundaries and fence lines mm-hmm. that goes back to the way they divided up the planet right. to the you know to the the lines of latitude and longitude uh, right now you're setting a mile from the 38th parallel you would be in south korea if you were followed that around the globe yeah but it the power of those lines and the power of our our dividing and drawing lines on the planet and then dividing Africa or dividing the state of Colorado or dividing out these sections and townships out here. Uh, the natural world doesn't understand that, you know, it goes under the fences and flies over the fences and is all around it everywhere. But our, our concept of ownership, this is my land, this is my piece. And that fence is the boundary is totally false. I mean, it's not even really real on some level. It is very real as far as our money and the way we deal with one another. But it's, and you know, we need to get beyond that a little bit and and think about it as a as a watershed, as Sam said, as a community where we're all 
we have our place where we go to sleep at night, but at the other hand, we're all managing this together. We're mm-hmm. all working to, to, to make this whole community, this whole valley a better place, mm-hmm. not just this little mm-hmm. ranch. Right. Yeah, I would like love to see more pastoralism come back to this area. I feel like I was a uh, friends of mine have this project that um, called Death in the Garden. They're creating a documentary and have a podcast series trying to, mm-hmm. you know, educate people around the fact that death is a part of like the natural cycle yeah. of life. And they're very like talk about confinement, all very aligned with all of this. They were doing a, I think, uh, working with uh, some pastoralists maybe in Sweden or something, but they had. They're interviewing them, and they had worked with the whole local community to allow the herd to travel through people's property, and you mm-hmm. know, came up with these elaborate plans. And um, it, you know, occurred to me obviously that there are so few places in the world that could still accommodate something like that. And I thought about Crestone, and I felt like I don't know. I think a lot of people would be okay with <laughs> <laughs> sheep walking across their property. Yeah. Probably overly simplistic and idealistic, but. Um, yeah, just what you said about the confinement and the lines, like what would that look like, right? Especially in this valley to have that kind of open, um, open dialogue, open, you know, communication, travel, all of that, um, engagement, I think is so. And it has to be done without some people who own the land and now and and are living in, the only thing we know is this system, not feeling threatened by it. Like, right. you know, that it all, oh, we're going to, this communism, we're going to lose our <laughs> rights, you know. We need to, we need to go about this in a way that where we're actually getting, having more value and more rights and more fluidity rather than thinking that that's going to take away somehow from us because right. we can't survive here inside this fence by ourselves. Right. You know, yeah. we were a part of this yeah. whole community. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for taking this time to chat with me yeah thank um, you yeah and so you said people can find more about you guys at blue range ranch yep yeah blue range ranch.com and, and i also saw there's like witten like there's different names witten ranch is that that's my family name okay um, we also have san juan ranch is <laughs> we have all these different llc's for these different businesses because that's gotcha. like i was talking about when yeah. they divided up the globe, they also created right. laws and taxes <laughs> and all those things. And yeah. so d- working in that world, uh, San Juan Ranch is the land, uh, San Juan Land and Livestock is the management company that manages this ranch. And so we've separated, we're very clear about business mm-hmm. and how, what makes a business a whole thing and what what each business's job is. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what each person's job is, we're trying to get really zeroed in on that. Right. As we transition ownership and management over to the next generation, and so Julie and I are really in the middle of that in our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 70 and Julie's 60 some, and so we're very focused on transitioning this legacy, this business, over to the next generation, and and so that. There's a lot of legal stuff that has to happen, obviously, to do that. But uh, mm-hmm. understanding what each entity actually is, yeah, and then and then how does it fit with the others, right? And so that we're we're in the middle of that. Are you the next generation? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. We're, we're in the process of all of yeah. Noel, George, Julie, and I are like George said in that process of figuring out how the you know. And part of that is like how this business can support, you know, 
more people and yeah. um yeah so that's we're kind of in this in this generative phase i guess where right. we're really trying to grow and expand but in a in a rational way that fits with our values right. and mission how many people work here no, about? Uh, there are, well, Sam and Noel, and then we have an apprentice, uh, Cooper Diaz, who's here for eight months. Cool. Uh, we have a, we always have at least one apprentice mm -hmm. on site, um, have had for more than 10 years, might 14 or 15 years. Uh, we've got, I think Cooper might be the 17th or 18th mm -hmm. graduate, or will be uh, this fall. And so all of those people, except maybe two or involved or have their own ranches or their own operations okay. somewhere we have a very high success rate with people who come here and spend some time they usually spend more than eight months they usually come back for a second term and you know yeah. but we love that yeah and it 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 has uh, i also have three children of my own and grandchildren mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know and we have all that to deal with and all this yeah. stuff so it's a very complicated, messy world we're living yeah. in, you know, and how do we, how do we do this and, and uh, make it so that it's, it has legs after we're gone, you know, mm -hmm. and we're, we're transferring, the, hopefully, the, we've learned and done enough good things that they're worth carrying on by somebody else. Yeah. And, and I think, again, the kind of driving idea here is collaboration rather than thinking about like possession i guess that's right. kind of how we've been framing this conversation is how can we bring in more people and have this be more of a support more people have more people involved and yeah. you know because that's that's really the the that's the goal. And you guys are you guys optimistic about that sort of seeing the younger generation interested in these things or feeling oh, get you know. apprentices every year. <laughs> yeah, we have yeah. Uh, the 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 new agrarian program has a large number of applicants every year. Mm -hmm. uh, varies for, for some reason. During COVID it wasn't very high and mm -hmm. I don't know people were afraid to get out, I guess, but yeah. Generally, it's, it's, there's a, a large number of young, usually professional people with college educations who found that, that they're not happy in the world yeah. and they want to get back to agriculture and they have no relatives. They don't, they're they're mm -hmm. maybe multi-generations away from agriculture right. and they want to get back in it. And so that's what we try to do is offer that. And, and we look for somebody who's got a real fire in their belly for it because it's not easy. Yeah. And if you decide to do this, it's going to be hard and it's going to be you know yeah uh commitment and and it's n never sure you know we have to make our own way in the world we're not you know we we make our living from sunlight and soil and so trying to figure out how to do that and feed ourselves let alone add multiple other people is a it's a you know it's a bit of a struggle but i'm very optimistic it can be done in fact i think it's the only way it's going to really happen mm -hmm. successfully yeah. otherwise Bill Gates alone and all, and we'll all <laughs> sit somewhere in a room and have our food yeah. delivered, I guess. Yeah. You know, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> as someone who, like, didn't grow up in agriculture but came to this and chose this as, like, a vocation, I think um, this is kind of an answer to the question of, like, how do people get involved. But I yeah. think it's really important. These apprenticeship or internship programs, I mean, Kavira is one of, of many out there, but... 
I would just really recommend if there are people who are listening who are really interested in learning more about this and getting involved, um, you know, don't just try and, again, do it yourself and decide I need to go, you know, find some land. And, you know, there's there's so many incredible learning opportunities out there to go work with people who have been doing this for a while and to to get some exposure to that and be kind of part of this bigger community, I think. So that's just a plug for, and the Kavira program is a great one too. And and that's from their sites in New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana. So cool. Colorado CDA also has ag workforce, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's probably a little more conventional maybe. Um, People who want to just hang out with, you know, people who are doing agriculture. That's a little bit, you know, everybody, there's choices and Mm -hmm. we cannot go from, the kind of agriculture we have now overnight. I mean, that transition, if you think about the logistics systems, the all yeah. the infrastructure that's set up to deliver people their food every yeah. day right now, if that collapsed, we would be in chaos. And so we don't want to do that. We want to, we want to modify and we want to change that system to a much more resilient one over time yeah. and not destroy it in the process because in destruction we have chaos and then... Right. Nobody knows how that's going to turn out. Yeah. So. Makes sense. Cool. Thank you both. Yeah. Appreciate thank it. you. Yeah. Hello again. Thank you for listening to that conversation with George and Sam. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will check them out, especially, especially if you're local. And that's it for now. I am going to play you out with The Universe by Gregory Allen Isakoff, who just released a new single called The Fall, off a new album that's coming out the day after my birthday, which is (laughs) the best birthday present ever. I love Gregory Alanisikoff, so very excited. This is one of his older songs, but one that I love and one that I thought fit perfectly with this episode. So enjoy this song, enjoy your week or weekend or month or year, wherever you are, and I will catch you next time. down like I always did and tried to calm her down I sent her my warmth and my silence and all she sends me back is rain Universe, she's wounded. She's still got infinity ahead of her. She's still got you and me. And everybody says that she's beautiful.
Oh, oh, oh. 